Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 99. I hope everybody is having a great week out there. I hope you are staying safe and staying healthy during the global pandemic. Uh, This has just been completely bizarre. I don't know about you guys, but I am having some pretty serious live show withdrawals right now. Uh, I just hope everybody is staying uh, as safe and socially distant as they possibly can. I hope all is going well for all of you guys, and I promise we're going to be back to normal before too long. We have just such an awesome interview for you today. This one is one that I've been waiting on for quite some time. I'm going to be joined in just a moment by the fantastic Patrick Musingo from the band Junkyard, one of my all-time faves. Uh, This one's been a long time in the making, and I had a whole lot of fun doing this. So stay tuned after this message from our sponsor, Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Lost Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Lost Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Lost Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Lost Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Lost Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Lost Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at lostcabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by Pat Muzingo here in just a moment. Um, Patrick has just, he's, first of all, a wonderful human being. um, And I'm very pleased to say that I've gotten to know him here over the last couple of years. We are both artists on the Lost Cabos Drumsticks uh, uh, artist roster. So I've kind of got to know him that way. And we've been talking about doing this for a long time. And we finally found a time where both of us could get on the phone and, and chat. Patrick has played drums in several different bands over the years. 
Um, he, he's played with just tons and tons of great talent. Most people know him mostly from his work with Junkyard, which is one of my all-time favorite bands, but he's also played in Speed Buggy USA, uh, Shanghai, America's Hardcore, um, it, it just a phenomenal drummer and just such a nice guy. So I, I'm just so pleased. I, I'm gushing here a bit, but I was just so pleased to do this. And I got to ask all of the silly fanboy questions that I've always wanted to know about Junkyard. Um, so without further ado, please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Patrick Musingo. Pat, how are you, brother? How are things? I'm in lockdown. I don't. I want to leave my house, but I can't. <laughs> Not Man. allowed unless it, unless I have a mask on now. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's um, these are crazy times we're living in for sure. And listen, I, you know, this one is long overdue. I certainly appreciate you taking time um, to come on the drum shuffle. We we really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, um, y- you know, you and I have been. I guess social media friends for quite some time. We're we're both um, artists with Lost Cabos Drumsticks, so that's kind of how. Oh we, yeah, but yeah, we got to plug the, the 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 best drumsticks on the market. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So um, you know, it, this show has only had one sponsor in its two year life, and that is Lost Cabos Drumsticks. So ah, oh, great. Yeah. So it, the, the Gways are just a wonderful family. Um, so it, that's oh yeah, really 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 amazing. I mean, they're really, they're a stick company that, uh, that they kind of remind me of, uh, the kind of the way Vic Firth was in the eighties. I mean, it, the Firth family was such a, you know, that stick company was so amazing. The whole family, I mean, it was such a uh, grassroots kind of thing. And then, uh, unfortunately as you know, things go and they blew up and they became uh, a little more, like, they became really big and, you know, it happens, but you know, Los Cabos. Oh God, those the, that company has just been fantastic. I think I've been with them now since 2016. Yeah, and I think that's about the time that I signed with them. I think maybe it was to early 2017 for me. I, I can't uh-huh. remember, you know. But that's how you and I first connected, you know, right. in, in our circles. But you know, I have uh, been a huge fan of Junkyard since day one. I mean, I, I, I just can't say that enough, um, you know, and, and I've told you before, you know, when I first started playing, I think I got my first kit in 1988, I want to say. Oh, okay. Um, and that's about right when I got my first real kit. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. You that, get signed and then all of a sudden, you know, you spend your whole life like, you know, buying gear and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you sign a deal and everybody's giving you stuff for free. And it's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Where were you guys in 1982 when I was in my, you know, punk rock band buying, uh, you know, symbols from a pawn shop? Exactly. <laughs> that <were cracked> already. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Well, you know, and, and back in those days, I guess you did get gear for free. You know, people ask me all the time about, you know, this whole endorsement thing. They're like, oh, it must be nice getting your stuff for free. And I'm like, uh, guess again. Well, it's not really for free. I mean, <laughs> back then it was, uh, you know, it was basically the it was it was such a uh, typical model where you, no matter what record deal you signed back in from, I would say from probably uh 87, probably, I, and I don't really have any kind of uh, experience uh, being signed with a major before 1987 because I was on a bunch of independent labels. But once you got that, I guess you call it the brass ring, then all of a sudden 
the Pearl Drums and Vic Firth and Zildjian and all these people come out of the woodworks and they're like, oh, we'll pick you up. And you go in and meet with these people and they're like, what do you want? And I'm like, well, I, you know, me being, you know, I wasn't going to take advantage of it. I'm like, I need a couple of crash cymbals and a ride. They're like, oh, we'll take you, you know, two ride cymbals, you know, four crash cymbals, two sets of hi-hats. I'm like, I don't need that. I just need the bare minimum. (laughs) Yeah. Well, back in those days, it was all about the video, right? Getting their gear on MTV, which, you know, that doesn't really exist anymore, but... Um, you know, but before I get too far down the rabbit hole of all that, <laughs> let's, that's a big rabbit hole too. It, endorsements. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> man, it really is. But you know, people ask me all the time, it must be nice getting free stuff. And I'm like, man, it is not like that at all. You know, it's, it's and it ain't free. It I mean, is, it's every once in a while, DW will kick me down something for free, you know, but it's, uh, you know, it's a uh, few and far between the free stuff. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, um, you, you know, it's, it's not about that. And I try to explain that to, to people and they, they just don't, uh, for whatever reason, they don't understand, but let's, let's go back a little bit because okay, I want to start at the very beginning. Now you're, you're an LA guy. You, you grew up in yep. Southern Cali. Um, oh, yeah. and it's interesting because you had a, kind of a, a fork in the road when you were a youngster. You you were a pretty good skater. I mean, you grew up in oh, kind yeah. of that skateboard culture of Southern California, and you were friends with some <laughs> some heavy hitters in the skating world. But at some point, you had to decide: Am I going to be a professional skater, or am I going to be, you know, am I going to follow the music path? But Talk to me a little bit about growing up in Southern California and when you first picked up sticks and, and you know, walk us through that chronological progression in your life. So basically it kind of started off, uh, God, in the, um, well, I mean, my whole family came uh, from a music background. Uh, my brother uh, uh, started off in high school and he was in the uh, Eagle Rock jazz band. And it kind of basically like a backstory of Eagle Rock, uh, Eagle Rock, uh, California, which is right between uh, Pasadena and Glendale uh, in Northeast Los Angeles. Uh, Eagle Rock had a uh, really good jazz program with a, uh, with a teacher named John Ronaldo, who was uh, really huge in the jazz community in the 50s and 60s. So he ended up uh, retiring and uh, started teaching at Eagle Rock High School. And his main focus was, uh, you know, to teach kids about jazz. So my bro- and, and the funny thing is, like, I went to the same high school that my mom went to. So <laughs> okay. the whole family went to the same high school. That's and cool. it was a weird high school because it was combined. Uh, it was seventh uh, through twelfth grade, so it was junior senior high school combined. So you had I don't even know how many people were in school at, the, at one time. It was like three thousand people or something. Oh wow! So it was a lot of people. But uh, so my brother started off playing trumpet, and then my sister was playing trombone, and they went from the junior jazz band to the senior jazz band. And I was the little kid that was always drug around by my parents. So I would always go to the uh, Sunday night jazz concerts and uh, that they would have where the um, it would always be like the opening act was uh, the junior jazz band. Then the middle slot act was the senior jazz band. And then the headliner was anybody that, you know, the the, uh, the musical teacher uh, could grab. So at one point it would be Buddy Rich or Shelly Mann or... Um, Louis Belson or, Oh my God, there was just so many people growing up. So I was the little kid. I was like the, the little kid that they would like throw in the mix. And at that point I was just a little skate rat and I had no 
I knew that I wanted to play music, but I just didn't know what I really wanted to do, if it was going to be drums or bass or guitar. I knew that I, would, I didn't want to play a wind instrument because it just, to me, it just, sound, it was just seemed like more of a pain in the ass. It seemed more of a workout to like play trumpet than, you know, play drums. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, um, you know, that being said, you know, I got to hang around with like a lot of great musicians, one of which was, uh, that was kind of an influence on me, I would say probably in, uh, when I picked up the sticks was, uh, Carlos Vega. And, uh, at that point, you know, he was just a, uh, he was just in, you know, he's a high school drummer and, uh, but there was something about him that was, you know, amazing. And, uh, he asked me if I wanted to, you know, take a few lessons. So I took a few lessons from him. And at that point, that's when I decided, yeah, I think I, I want to pick up the sticks. And, uh, so he kind of guided me that way. So I started off really playing, uh, jazz, uh, you know, and then went into marching band, which is, uh, probably the main reasons why I play my sticks backwards, because that's the only way you can really be heard <laughs> right. the crap out of those things in marching band. <laughs> and that was right. back in the day when, you know, you played, I played, uh, you know, I played, uh, I think second snare or something. And the sticks they gave me were those big old Ludwig, like, I think they were two S or three S. I mean, these things were like <laughs> trees. Logs. Yeah. And the, and the, and the, uh, uh, the director was like, no, you got to play those things backwards to be heard. So, you know, he's like, hit harder, hit harder. So I was like, Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> and uh, so that's how I ended up like, you know, having that style of just playing the sticks backwards. Plus, you know, as things go on and you play in loud rock bands, you need to be heard because you're, you know, like say in 1980, you're at a rehearsal studio. They didn't mic up the drums back then. So you had right. to beat the crap out of them to compete against a, uh, you know, some guy with a damn Marshall stack and a, you know, bass player <laughs> with like two SVT cabinets. It's like, well, I can barely hear my snare drum. So you just have to beat the crap out of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, so yeah. So after, so during that period, uh, I was skating and I was, uh, a, fr a couple friends of mine had built a ramp down the street from my mom's house. And, uh, so we had, a we had kind of an X game style ramp probably, I would say in probably, uh, 1979, 1978, we started building these humongous ramps and, um, we never really let anybody in that we didn't know. So it was the core five of us that skated. And then, um, I think, I think, uh, what was it? I think, you know, going forward a little bit to probably 1982, uh, this skater guy, Lance Mountain, decided he was going to come and uh, take some pictures of the ramp and feature it in a uh, magazine called Trans World Skateboard Magazine. So he shot us and he interviewed us. And, uh, and at that point, that's when all of a sudden we were, I mean, we were getting really good and also skating in competitions against people like Lance Mountain, Jeff Grosso, uh, Eric Nash, Neil Blender, Tony Hawk, Steve Caballero, all those guys. And we were these five little skate rats from Eagle Rock and nobody knew anything about Eagle Rock back then. <laughs> so we would like come in and we would just be like, you know, we were, and of course this is pre punk rock. So we come in just, you know, five little stoner kids from uh, Eagle Rock coming in and taking over the place. And nine times out of 10, we would not do well because we were skating in pools. And when you skate in a pool, you know, it's a big difference between skating in a pool and skating in a ramp. So we would come in and we would be ramp skaters and we were like, Oh, we don't even know how to carve this pool, but we would do the tricks on the wall. So we would, you know, we would gain a little bit of notoriety as the five little lunkheads from Eagle Rock. But, uh, <laughs> we, um, yeah, we did well on, uh, on contests. I think at one point, I think the highest I ever ranked in a contest was probably, I think 1980, I got fifth place out of 20 guys. And, uh, I think one of the guys could have been, 
I think it could have been Hawk. I'm not sure because Hawk is a little younger than me. So, um, but uh, I don't, yeah, I'd have to look back on the clippings on that. My mom has all that stuff. So, but uh, yeah, we were, uh, you know, we were in there. We were, I guess, basically like second or third generation uh, Southern California skaters. That's that I, uh, just went out there and skated the, you know, skated 24 seven. Yeah, that's amazing to me that that you know you dropped some pretty huge names in there. You know, I mean, in in the skating world, <laughs> I mean, so you grew up around all those guys, and you know, I mean, I know that that punk was like a really big thing for you. So when kind of the the punk rock scene started exploding, I, I'm guessing mm-hmm. that really drew you in more on the music side. Is that a fair assumption on my part? Um, what was that the, on the punk rock stuff? Yeah, so it was punk. What oh, drew yeah. you to the music side of of your life more? It was funny because, like, basically skating, like punk rock, kind of. That's how I kind of discovered punk rock. Was well, I, actually, I mean, I kind of discovered punk rock. Um, as crazy as it sounds, via Kiss, you know, via like looking in Cream magazine and seeing Kiss and you know Aerosmith and all those bands, and uh, especially Cream magazine because they were basically, I think, they were based out of New York. So all of a sudden, you'd, you know, I'd look and see, oh, there's a new Kiss picture, you know, there's a new Aerosmith picture or a new review of an album. But then all of a sudden in the back pages, there'd be the Ramones or the Sex Pistols. Yeah. And I was like, who are these bands? I mean, these guys are weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, these guys don't make any sense. And I have no idea what they sound like. So I finally went down to the record store and I picked up, um, I picked up Nevermind the Bullocks and uh, put it on. And it was like, all of a sudden the light went off in my head. It was like, whoa, this is really cool. And, uh, fuck kiss, you know, <laughs> you know sex festival. <laughs> and then that went down the whole rabbit hole of, uh, finding, you know, the clash and the damned and, uh, you know, the Ramones. I mean, I, I think I, when I started off playing and listening to punk rock, it was mostly, uh, uh, British punk rock more yeah. than, uh, stuff in LA. Cause the stuff in LA was, uh, I think back then, I think the biggest bands were like germs and X and, uh, black flag. And I, I, I used to go see all those bands, but there was something about them that, um, they didn't have the the flair, I guess, that the British uh, punk bands had. Yeah, yeah. And the music yeah. was, you know, music was a little more hard. I guess more hard edge, where the British stuff was pretty much, if you listen back to it, it was pretty much like pop music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. So, so I, I'm guessing around this time is when you started forming your your first bands as as a youngster. And I, now I, I've heard this story and I don't know if it's true. So, so let's, l- let's put all the rumors to rest. Um, okay. <laughs> the rumor that I have heard is one of the very first bands that you joined was called the Atoms, A-T-O-M-S, yep. the Atoms. Yeah. And you replaced a young guy by the name of Jeff Isbell on drums and yeah yep (laughs) jeff Isbell is probably better known by his stage name of izzy stradlin he decided to play guitar is is that a true story yeah so what it was is uh when i all of a sudden you know when i chopped my hair off and decided okay i'm gonna be a punk rocker and i go after these shows and i at that point i i don't think i was really looking for a band to play in because uh I didn't have a car. Uh, my drum set was really <laughs> janky and, uh, I had never played with anybody before. I just played in my tin shed in my parents' backyard, which I'm sure the neighbors hated, but, um, <laughs> you know, but at least I got, they got to hear me as I progressed. I guess. <laughs> right. So I got a, I, I was hanging around with a bunch of punkers and, uh, 
I got introduced to, um, uh, who was it? Uh, it was the singer of the Adams, a guy named Monty Messix. And, uh, he said, Hey, we're looking for a drummer because, uh, our drummer decided he wanted to be a guitar player. And I was like, okay, sounds good. Where are you guys at? And it turns out that they weren't too far away from my parents' house. So I got, uh, I got a friend of mine who had a car to drive my kid over and I walk in the rehearsals or not even the rehearsal studio, the basement of the guy's house. And I walk in and I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, these guys aren't punk rockers. What the, what is this? I mean, they got like, kind of like, uh, they were, they were like scum glam guys. And, uh, I was like, okay, the singer's kind of weird looking, real skinny kind of, uh, vibe. Uh, the bass player, I believe was a Vietnam vet. I think he was older. I mean, cause I was what, 15 or 16. And, uh, so he was probably 30 or something. So it was weird playing with a dude that was like, to me was old, you know, and, <laughs> right. uh, I was just, I was like, wow, this is weird. Is he going to have flashbacks while we're playing? <laughs> <laughs> Which he actually did, but <laughs> nice. And, and then the guitar player, um, you know, was this guy, Jeff. And, uh, and at that point he had switched from drums to rhythm guitar. And there was another guitar player in the band as well, uh, that pretty much looked like how Izzy looks, you know, in, during the appetite era. But, uh, at that point, Jeff was, uh, basically a skater, drummer, guitar player. So I started doing rehearsals with him and, uh, started skating a couple backyard pools with Jeff. And, um, as we're skating together, he was just telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, I don't want to be in this punk rock band. I want to move to Hollywood and, uh, you know, kind of join the rock scene or whatever. And at that point I had, I was so naive. I was like, rock scene. What do you mean? Rock scene? Like, you know, quiet riot or something like that. He goes, yeah, kind of like that. And I was like, wow, you're a poser. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh. So the first show I, so the first show I did with them, so I rehearsed with them. And, uh, I mean, the stuff that they did was, uh, mostly we covered a bunch of like New York dolls songs and we had original songs that sounded like New York dolls. And, uh, I would say it'd be a cross between like the New York dolls and social distortion. So it wasn't really like hardcore fast. I got and, you. uh, I was, and then as I'm playing with them, um, the, the more I started rehearsing, I think we were rehearsing a lot. We were rehearsing like three times a week, uh, because we had a show that was booked, you know, a couple months ahead of time. And, uh, and, uh, I was, the guy, uh, Jeff had stopped showing up to rehearsal, which was fine because we had another guitar player. And, uh, and then finally I went to the singer and I'm like, well, what's going on with Jeff? Is he not in the band anymore? He goes, no, he'll be at the show. He knows the songs. Don't worry about it. And, uh, so I ended up playing my first show, uh, I think it was 1980 at a, uh, uh, strip bar, uh, that used to have <laughs> bands play every Thursday night or something like that. And I'm like going Thursday night. I'm like, dude, I got to go to school on Friday. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> oh, so man. I ended up, uh, grabbing a friend of mine, drove me down with my gear and uh, I walked into club and, um, and I didn't realize that, you know, you had to have a, you know, I had to be 18 and over to get in and, uh, all the other guys in the band, I believe were 18. And so I was like, you know, so 16 years old. And, uh, so I was told that you know, I have to wait outside until it's time to play. And then a, a, a security guy would walk me to the stage, let me play and then have to walk me out. And then he would take all my gear out for me. So it was just kind of strange. And I think, uh, and Izzy did show up or Jeff showed up and a bunch of other guitar players showed up. So all of a sudden I was on stage and there was like, Oh, we're going to have a special guest come up and play. And I'm like, who are these people? God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fantastic. totally being naive. And then finally the, uh, the older bass player guy, you know, he's like, dude, you're kind of like, you know, you got to chill out a bit. He was like, here, have a beer. And I'm like, yeah, I think I, I need one. So he gave me, uh, 
I remember it distinctly. It was a Coors Tall Boy, and I drank all of it and went on stage, and I was kind of hammered. <laughs> oh man, yeah. And uh, we played for you know we played for an hour, and there's probably about I don't know 25 people there. And then afterwards, uh, word got around that um, that the Adams had picked up a drummer that I could actually walk and count to four at the same time because <laughs> most of the drummers in LA back then were like. You know, oh, I'll play drums. Just give me a drum set, and then they just bash away at it, and they have no idea on uh, on how to play, like you know, how to you know do dynamics. Like, hey, bring it down in the verse, and then you can make it loud on the chorus, kind of thing. Right. Well, so at that point, I ended up uh, picking up. Uh, I got word got around, and I started getting offers from a lot of different bands. So I was playing. I think uh, after the Adams, I ended up playing. Uh, I think in three different bands at one point. The next year, in like '81. Wow. So, so you got real busy real quick as a young guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I, I mean, to me, I didn't, I didn't expect it and I didn't know how to, I mean, I knew how to handle it, but uh, it was more logistics. Like how do I get around without having a car Right. kind of thing? So, uh, you know, a good friend of mine uh, that was older and had a driver's license uh, got to drive me around. And then at that point I figured out, oh yeah, I can get a fake ID too. So I can actually stay in the club that I'm playing at rather than waiting outside. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. I mean, that's the next logical step, right? <laughs> oh yeah. And then going, going up to the bar and like saying, I'll have a beer. What kind? I don't know. A beer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're like, all right, kid. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Well, so, you know, I, I'm trying to, you know, get my head wrapped around it, but the music scene was so eclectic in Southern California at this time you know, the, the, the early, oh, yeah. the early to mid eighties, like, and I think it was kind of sectored off too. Like you, if you wanted to see the rock bands, you had to go down like the strip, right. And in, in Hollywood yeah. and the punk bands had, you know, their camp set up, you know, out in your area kind of deal. And then it you, was kind of a, it was kind of a gorilla situation. Like, uh, what they would, what a lot of, uh, promoters did, and this even goes back to the big, huge uh, company, Golden Voice. What they would do is they would um, find empty warehouses and they would just, you know, hit up the uh, landlord and like, dude, you're not renting this out, but we'll rent it for the night for like a hundred bucks. Uh-huh. Then they'd bring in a PA system and then they'd uh, promote, you know, they would flyer other shows and then they would have one show at this one warehouse and then they wouldn't have a show there again. And then it would just move from different areas to different areas. I got you. And uh, there was, a, with punk rock, especially in um, in L.A., it was a pretty close-knit uh, scene. I mean, it, when I started, it wasn't like, you know, there wasn't like 300 people at a show. It was more like 60 to 75 people at a show, depending upon if you're playing North Hollywood, if you're playing the Valley, or you're playing Hollywood, or if you're playing like out in my area in Eagle Rock or Monrovia area. So it would just be people from that area. And I think the whole L.A. scene, punk rock scene from probably 1981 to 1983 was probably anywhere between, I don't know, 150 people to 300 people. So you would always see the same people at that shows and then you finally get to know each other. And, you know, you would hang around. I like I got lucky because playing in a band. There was a lot of like punk rock gangs back then. There was like the Circle One gang, and there was an FFF gang, and then there were in, in Hollywood there was this uh, gang called the Lads. But I got to—I guess I got a free pass on all of them because I was a drummer in a band. Right. So I got to like hang around with all these gangs, and basically, 
they weren't like a gang that would go out and cause crimes. Well, they kind of would, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, they, their whole thing was like to get together before a show, hang out, have some beers and then rush the door so they don't have to pay to get in. Ah. So I got to hang around with all these different factions, having the free pass, having the immunity, I guess, uh, between all these gangs. So I got to, uh, hang around with all these different people. So that's where I ended up getting hit up. Hey, you want to play in my band? We're playing tomorrow night. And I'm like, I don't know your music. It's like, don't, don't worry about it. Just show up. We'll, you know, I'll cue you on the break. So it was like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I mean, that's cool. And I think a lot of, you know, young players get to experience things like that. You know, they, they mm-hmm. play in a bunch of different bands but, you know, for far too many musicians of that age and, and, you know, early in their musical careers, if you want to call it that, they just stop uh, doing it. You know, they, they go off right. to college or whatever. Um, yeah. It, it, you know what I mean? And I think if people, um, I, I don't know, I guess some people just commit to it. I, I, you know, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You just commit to this is what I want to do. Um, and and, you know, I don't want to skip too far ahead or gloss anything Uh over, but talk to me a little bit about the formation of junkyard because you guys all kind of came from punk backgrounds, but that's not exactly what junkyard was. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We basically, it's funny because like I I just done a a couple of weeks ago, I did Danko Jones podcast and he wanted to know the same thing. It's like, how did, uh, how did a guy from minor threat from DC and a guy from Texas and the big boys and a guy from LA all get together? Yeah. And you know, it all started out really with, um, the first time I met Brian Baker was I was playing in a band called America's hardcore and, um, it was America's hardcore. I mean, this, this music, I listen back to it now and I'm like, how did I play that fast? I have no clue. And, uh, so I was playing in that band and we had a gig opening up for minor threat. So, uh, our vans were parked next to each other. And, uh, so I just went over and started talking with Brian and, um, we just started talking about like, uh, I, I was asking him questions, you know, basically about minor threat. And I think that's the last thing he wanted to hear from. He didn't want to talk about minor threat. He wanted to talk about like, uh, I think skateboarding and just music and stuff like that. So we just started chatting and, uh, actually struck up a friendship. And after we played that show out in the Valley, it was at some big roller rink. After we did that show, we ended up, uh, the band that I was in, we traveled up to San Francisco to open up for them again. And that's when I got to hang out with them a little more. And, uh, so back then this was 1980, this was 1983. And, um, back then the only way you communicated with each other was either via writing a letter or making a phone call. So we wrote letters back and forth. We kept in touch. And, uh, so then fast forward, I guess, basically to, uh, 1984, 1985, when I finally went on my first U.S. tour with a band that I was in called Decry. And Decry was basically a version, it was kind of like, uh, we weren't really hardcore, we were kind of like, if the Dead Boys and Aerosmith got together and decided they wanted to be a punk rock band, that's what Decry was. Oh, that's cool. So it was cool. really yeah. like kind of, it was more rock and punk kind of thing. Mixed in with a little fast hardcore stuff, but it was based. To, it, it was songs that actually had a lead guitar in it, which was really strange for back then. Yeah, I think the only the only bands that had like leads back then from LA were like TSOL and the Adolescents, you know, because they had guitar players that could actually play leads. So, um, so in Decry, we went on our first tour in eighty. I think it was eighty four because we only did two tours. So we did eighty four and eighty five. So in eighty four, we did a U.S. tour. We bought a van for one hundred and fifty bucks and hopped in the van and. uh 
we had our record company help us book shows. And we ended up uh, doing the whole United States, and we ended up in Texas, and uh, we were playing in Austin. can't remember the name of the club, but um, we, we had heard of the big boys, and we knew who Chris Gates was via the skate community. And uh, all of a sudden, we, you know, Chris Gates walks in. We're like, oh, my God, Chris is here from the big boys. Oh, boy, we better be good tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was another thing. It was, uh, you know, we hung around with him afterwards, and uh, – chatted with him and he hooked us up with a place to stay. And, uh, and at that point we exchanged numbers and, uh, I kept in constant contact with him. And, um, he had mentioned to me, like, he goes, I like what Decry is doing. And I kind of want to put a band together. I want to move to LA and put a kind of a rock band together, but a rock, more punk rock type of band, uh, rather than like a hardcore band. So at that point he, he wanted me and the, uh, the bass player, Todd Muscat to be in his new band that he had this idea for. So we kept in touch and uh, I think Decry had went on our second tour in 85 and that was kind of when um, things were changing in the LA scene. All the punk rock bands decided they wanted to go rock and roll. Decry decided the same thing and uh, so we kind of went full bore rock and roll but we, uh, we were kind of confused at the time. So we were uh, more, we, we looked like a we looked like a cross between the New York Dolls and like a goth band. I mean, we just looked really silly. <laughs> <laughs> we had we had no clue, and uh, we started hanging around in Hollywood a lot because that's where the the rock bands that that was kind of the beginning of the street rock kind of like Guns N' Roses uh, East Hollywood scene. So we hung around with a lot of those guys, and I had known Jeff, you know, from back then. And I think actually. Uh, Guns N' Roses' third or fourth show was opening up for my band, my punk rock band, Decry, in uh, Chinatown. So we saw them, and we were like, ooh, we want to do something like that. I got like, you. That's the idea. Uh, okay. Okay. And uh, so we, uh, we went on our tour, and our van broke down in Boston, and uh, we flew back, and that was pretty much the end of Decry. And the core members of the guitar player, bass player, and myself – we decided once we go back to LA, let's start a rock band. So we kind of got rid of the singer and Decry turned into a band called Shanghai. And then that's how we kind of got into the, uh, I guess the, you would call it, I guess the glam rock scene back then or the street rock scene. It was hard to say. There's so many different bands and so many different labels on it. So. Well, yeah, there, there were, um, but you know, I'm going to try to interject a little bit because when you, when you guys came out, I, I was just starting to play, but you had bands at this time, you know, the biggest bands in the world, like you said earlier, Quiet Riot, you know, right. Poison was just starting to to make waves. You know, Def Leppard was huge from across the pond. They had been around for a yeah. while, but they were kind of starting to change their image a bit, um, mm-hmm. you know. The thing about Junkyard, you guys got a lot of comparisons to Guns N' Roses because you guys didn't really like wear makeup and spandex. You guys weren't the the glitter side of that, you know. We were we were ugly enough. You add makeup on us, and it's like putting makeup on a pig. It's like, <laughs> no, nah, man, don't don't do that. God. <laughs> That's so funny. But I mean, it's you, like, no, we can't dress like that. No, it'll look silly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you had you had Motley Crue, who you know, in, in Quiet Riot, who I think everybody said, yeah. you know, the, these are the kings of of Hollywood or, or of the strip, oh, yeah, for right? Sure. And, and even rats who had back then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's what a lot of people 
that's what they imagine in their mind when I say, you know, you guys signed to Geffen Records in, you know, 87 or 88, whenever that was. Uh-huh. But but you guys didn't fit exactly that mold. And, you know, I, I've told you uh, earlier, you know, I, I grew up on Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers Band and things like that. And you guys had oh, yeah. s- such a pronounced Southern lean you know, to your band, I just assumed you guys were like from Atlanta or something. The first time I heard the band, um, we got that a lot. I think that really stemmed from, uh, you know, basically Chris Gates moving out, uh, from Texas, from Austin, Texas to Hollywood. And it wasn't really his general idea to, to like having, you know, having the music be so, uh, Southern influence stuff. It was just basically, that's what came out. We weren't, we weren't specific, specifically saying we, do, we have to write this song that sounds like uh, Skinner. We have to write this song that sounds like, uh, you know, uh, Molly Hatchet or whatever. Right. So we were just, uh, we would get together, we would play covers, and the covers that happened to come out would be a ZZ Top cover or a Skinner cover or, you know, Molly Hatchet cover or even like a Ted Nugent cover. So it just kind of like came out of us. And uh, so there wasn't like a specific thing like, oh, we're going Southern Rock. I think it was really mainly... Uh, uh, Chris Gates's influences growing up in, you know, Texas and, uh, playing that certain style and it just came out and, um, it, you know, it was just crazy how, you know, a bunch of, you know, guys from successful punk rock bands get together, they form a rock band and it actually comes out to be kind of a Southern rock kind of vibe. It, we, we had no intention on doing that whatsoever. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, I don't think you guys, I, I, I don't think you guys could ever be accused of being, you know, inauthentic, right? Or or, or not, right. you know, but it was just this great roots, hard rock music. And, you know, when I first discovered Junkyard, I was convinced you guys were going to be bigger than the Stones or the Beatles. I was like, this is it. You know, I mean, so it is, was... So was Geffen Records, so was uh, <laughs> our manager, so was our lawyer, uh, God. And, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I think like we had said earlier, it basically went, you know, it, the, getting a record deal is the easiest part of being in a band. It's once you do, once you get the record deal, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. If you have songs, you know, they'll last, but if you don't have songs or if the record label's like, well, we got to fire half the band and bring in a songwriter, then it's like, eh, it's not really authentic. It's not really happening. But with us, um, we had the songs and we didn't, the look was like confusing to them and they just really kind of didn't know how to market us. Uh, so they just kind of threw us in with all the other bands that were happening, you know, in 1988, 1989, which is fine because if they would have thrown us in the alternative scene, we probably would have been laughed at, you know, it was like, you know, cause back then it was alternative music slash college radio stuff. And it was like, a, you know, REM and stuff. So we would have been, if we would have been thrown into that, uh, whole scene it, people would have just looked at us and said, forget it. But, um, you know, there's, it's, it was, uh, I remember sitting in on a lot of marketing meetings on how oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. And then at one point they said something like, you know, we know that you have, you know, you have full artistic control on how you look and stuff like that, but maybe you guys can dress up a little bit. And of course, at that point, we told them to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. I mean, any it's good. Like we're going to be us. Yeah. You know? <laughs> any, you know, good self-respecting rock band is going to tell the guy at the label, you know, blow it out your ass, dude. Exactly. You know? So, but, and I don't want to put too fine a point on this, you know, but signing uh, uh, with Geffen Records 
1988. You know, I think Guns N' Roses got signed just a little bit before you guys did, but their record. Yeah, they were signed, I think, in, they were signed, I believe, in 86, like late 86, and we were picked up in late 87, or not like September of 87, because when you sign a record deal, especially back then, the last thing you want to do is sign a record deal at the end of the year because you know right off the bat you're a tax write-off. Exactly. So I think actually we got signed, we got picked up, I believe, in June of 87. And uh, we were like, oh, great. Let's hop right in the studio and record the record and put it out. And it's like, no, it's going to take about a year and a half. And we're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way we did it in our punk rock bands. <laughs> right. Well, so, but, you know, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, you know, arguably one of the best, you know, debut albums, you know, as far as sales yeah. of all time. It took that record probably a year, a year and a half to break through after it hit shelves, you know, and, and then it just kind of exploded, but signing a deal with Geffen records was a really big deal. They weren't just handing those out to people (laughs) during that time, especially that label. Cause there was other labels that were interested in us. And uh, I guess once you get the phone call or once you play, like for us, we got lucky because we were from the East Hollywood scene. We had really nothing to do with the sunset strip and the East Hollywood scene really consisted of, uh, of really, I guess the main band that came out of East Hollywood was probably Jane's Addiction. Uh, like East Hollywood being closer to downtown LA than, than the Sunset Strip. So we had Jane's Addiction from East Hollywood. You had um, uh, this other band called The Hangmen. Uh, you also had uh, uh, kind of the beginnings of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So, and there was a couple of uh, clubs that were part of the East Hollywood scene, one of it, which was uh, called Raji's and another place called Club Lingerie. And, uh, so we never really went like west of a certain street. We never, we, we never really went up to the strip. I mean, I think at one point when we were playing around in the clubs, uh, we tried to go up there and flyer and people just looked at us. It's like, you guys look like a bunch of bikers or roadies. You guys aren't in a band. And they would just take our flyer and throw it on the ground. And we're like, well, fuck these guys. We'll just go back to our, our side of town. <laughs> That's so funny. God. I remember, I remember specifically, God, just, it was like, I, I can't remember who was. Oh, no. Actually, we went up there to go see Guns N' Roses. They were playing the Roxy. And we we're like, well, we got a flyer because there's going to be a bunch of people. And we had just figured out our logo. And we took a, like, you know, we did a picture and we put it on there. And people, like, we'd hand it to chicks and they'd be like, Oh, these guys are ugly. And they just throw it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> That's so and we'd be funny. like, okay, we're good. Let's go back to our little uh, bar in uh, East Hollywood and, uh, you know, get drunk and, you know, figure out what we're going to do. <laughs> well, I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot with this. And, and, you know, if, if you don't want to disclose it, you don't have to, but I, I want to draw a comparison of the way things were in the late eighties on a major label to what they're like now. Do you remember what your, bud- uh, do you remember what your budget was for that first record? Oh yeah. We went over budget. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. When you actually could. I, oh yeah. I remember, I think when we, cause the weird thing is we, when we got signed, uh, basically the, we had it, we had management at the time and the people that managed us, uh, uh, were, uh, were, uh, two people that ran an, uh, iconic LA club called scream. Uh, and the scream used to have bands. Uh, they would, they would put on a show, uh, on a Friday night, uh, in downtown LA and they would draw like, uh, you're talking about a couple thousand people and the bands were almost secondary because it was kind of a dance club, but they would have bands like James addiction, like the chili peppers. Uh, they'd have us. So we ended up, um, 
we ended, they, they asked us if they wanted to manage us, and they had a little bit of background on, in the record industry. So they knew how to get a band into the door, or they knew how to drop off a demo tape to an A&R person rather than just mailing it in and it, it, the envelope getting lost in the shuffle with everything else. So they ended up, um, uh, you know, we did our demo and, uh, they, they would actually walk into the office and hand it to them. And, uh, we had, a, we had interest early on from, I'd say probably about, uh, three or four different labels. And, uh, we would go into the meetings with our management and, uh, we'd walk out of the meeting going, Oh my God, we were in a major record label in a conference room talking to these people. We are going to get signed. And of course, the, the two people that managed us go, they were like, hold on, hold on. This is, you know, they're basically dating you right now. They don't know, want to know if they want to get in a relationship with you just yet. They're just kind of feeling you out. So, um, and it, when we ended up getting picked up by Geffen, uh, we got the phone call from them and they said, guess what? You know, Geffen decided they wanted to pick you up. Now we got to get a lawyer. Uh, and uh, we're going to basically leave you guys because it's now time for you guys to get real management because we can't handle you guys after you get picked up. We, you guys need to get a bigger manager to handle like, uh, like the day-to-day operations of, uh, you know, getting played on the radio and, uh, what managers do is that, you know, going into the record label, asking for more money or, you know, signing a publishing deal and all that stuff. So when we signed with Geffen, uh, we went in, uh, we had finally got, we, I think they, they decided to sign us. And then a week later we got an attorney who basically brokered the deal and he acted as manager. And then we paid off our managers. We gave him, uh, I think we gave him 10% of the deal and, uh, that was it. And, uh, the deal was oh, off the top of my head. I want to say that, um, it was about $300,000 <laughs> and that was, that was just the record. That was the record budget. We had only, we had only negotiated the record budget. <laughs> and, um, but we, all we heard was like, all these people would get signed. And next thing you know, everybody would be driving around in brand new cars and like moving into a better apartment. And we were like, well, where's that money coming from? They're like, well, you got to renegotiate besides the record recording costs. You got to negotiate what you want on top of it. And we ended up negotiating kind of an all inclusive deal where we got a little bit of money. And, uh, what we did is, uh, being the punk rockers that we were, we were like, okay, how long can we make each person's money last? So we ended up, um, we ended up doing a budget where, uh, each one of us got a salary per month. We got an $800 a month salary and we made that last for a year and a half wow. upon sign upon the first time that we got our uh, first checks. And I think each one of us did take, uh, each one of us took a $2,000 advance as our big rock star money. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas other people would take $50,000. We would take two grand. And, uh, I think, uh, at that point we went out and we still kept our, you know, we had jobs, yeah, meaning little jobs here and there working at like, uh, you know, shoe store, like down on Melrose working at, uh, record shops or, uh, clothing stores. So we still kept our jobs, but, uh, we still kept our crappy $400 a month apartments, but we went out and bought our rock star cars. And, uh, I remember specifically my rock star car was a 1961 Chevy Biscayne that was seafoam green. It was big as a boat and it cost me 1200 bucks. Nice. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, you guys did the smart thing because so many bands of that era, like you said, you know, they would go out and buy a Ferrari and, you know, a $20,000 oh, wardrobe and, you, you know, go, go get, you know, thousands of dollars worth of tattoos and, 
But, oh, yeah. Yeah. What nobody really realizes is when you sign that deal and you get that advance money, as they say in the biz, that's uh-huh. that's basically what you're going to have to live on for the next year and a half until your record comes out and you hope it breaks and you can get on a, a, a the road with a, a good tour and have some right. income coming in. So you guys did it the smart way. So kudos to you. Well, also, we, we also, you know, we knew that, hey, this money ain't free. It's going to have to be paid back. Right. And uh, so the way I equate it now, it's basically, you know, when all those bands got picked up, uh, Geffen, Warner Brothers, Electra, all those labels, basically they were predatory lenders. <laughs> That's all they were. I mean, you were basically getting a quarter of a million dollars but you'd have to pay back a half a million dollars or sometimes a million dollars. So you'd be like the percentage rate on the loan that they give you was insane. And of course everybody signed it because you're like, Oh, I'm I'm in the, I'm in the fancy glass office and I've got to sign the deal so I can get my money to go buy a new pair of pants. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it was a crazy time, no doubt. And thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I wanted to, to give everybody a little bit of inside baseball but, it, you know, some of my burning questions for you, uh, you know, this great trip down memory lane, where ah. in, in the world did you come up with your setup? I have never seen. <laughs> OK, now I, I, I want to try to paint this picture for folks and we're going to give everybody okay. your, your social media stuff at the end here gotcha. so that they can see pictures. But uh-huh. our good friend Pat here plays this slanted setup. His snare is slanted almost like a jazz drummer away from him. So going into, you know, where your rack Tom would be, he it's slanted away from him. And and that's not so weird for a guy that might play traditional grip, but you don't. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, No. (laughs) And your floor Tom, (laughs) neither can I, your floor Tom (laughs) is angled as severely as your snare drum towards your kick. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the first time I saw it, I was like, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, I mean, it's exactly I get that every time. (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm sure like when you guys go out and do shows even today and and you're doing backline or something like that and you've got, you know, local crew setting up, I'm sure they're like, what do you mean you want it angled away from you? You know, I, I, I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. But how did that get, how did that come into being? Well, the weird thing is, so basically, like I would the guy going back to like when I got picked up, when, when the band got picked up on Geffen. And uh, that's when I originally went with uh, with uh, I was with Pearl Drums for about a year. And um, prior to that, the kit that I played, it, the, the kit that I played in Junkyard, the configuration is the exact same as what I play now. I, I never had, I, the only time I ever had a rack Tom was when we went out on our second, uh, when we did our second record. Uh, but, uh, uh, prior to, you know, us getting signed and when we did get signed, I always had basically a three piece kit, just a snare kick drum and a floor Tom. And, um, I didn't angle it like severe, like I did back then. Uh, it was basically just, you know, a regular, you know, the seat was a regular height and the snare was a regular height. And, um, and then going when we did the six of sevens nines record, that's when uh, uh, I, I had to jump from Pearl Drums because they were they were nice at first and uh, they gave me a great kit. Uh, the specs that I had was a, I always played a twenty six inch kick and an eighteen inch floor, 
And, uh, you know, when I, the, they were supporting me pretty well. And, uh, then I had a run in with them and I was just like, forget it. And this was probably, this was early 1990 when, um, we went out, um, we had an opening act, uh, called the black Crows. You know, you may have heard of them. <laughs> I've, 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 this seems like I've heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So some small little band from Atlanta. Uh, so we, we had, uh, so uh, during that run, um, that's right when uh, I got hit up. Uh, a friend of a friend hooked me up with uh, this small company that was starting to make rumbles, this kind of jazz drum company called DW. And uh, so I, at that point, I was like, well, I'm done with Pearl Drums, so let me, I, wanna, I wanted to go with Ludwig. And so our management just put it out there to every drum company, like, hey, you know, this guy's looking for an uh, endorsement. And um, a couple of uh, drum companies came back, and, uh, but DW kind of struck me as a really cool, they were kind of a small mom and pop company. I dug the whole jazz background that they had. And I went out there and met with John good for, Oh God, about six or seven hours. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he basically was like, sit down, son, the professor's <laughs> going to teach you about wood. <laughs> that sounds so like John good. I'm going to teach you everything you never wanted to know about plies of, uh, uh of maple. And then, it, and then at the end of it, I'm going to test you. Right, <laughs> was exactly. Like, Whoa, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I remember funny. going out there uh, right before we did the the Black Crows tour. Um, I went out there and he, you know, he did the six hour thing. And, uh, you know, me and my drum tech are just sitting out there like, is this, are, are we going to be with DW or what's going on? I mean, this guy's like giving us a, you know, this <laughs> lecture on wood and all this stuff. And then finally at the end, he goes, okay, well, uh, you know, it came down to the configuration of the kid. He goes, okay, well, let's build your kid. And I'm like, oh, uh, uh, am I on the roster? He goes, oh, yeah, you're, of course you're on the roster. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. And I was like, oh, okay, because I thought I was in the principal's office and I got in trouble. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so at that point, that's when me and my drum tech go, dude, we looked at each other and said, hey, man, you know, why don't you, like, add a rack, Tom? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, sure, why not? Let's add, a floor, let's add two floor toms on there. So we... Uh, so when I, we sat with John, you know, and that was back when all of their, uh, all of the shells were done by uh, Keller. Um, I told him I wanted the 26 by 18 inch kick, uh, 14 inch racks, 16 and 18 floor. And so I went to a bigger drum kit and that was the biggest drum set I think I've ever played in any band. And, uh, and he told me, he goes, okay, well, everything's good. And, uh, we picked up the finish and, uh, he goes, okay, well, it's not going to be ready for about another like eight months. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I go, can I have a loaner kit or something? He goes, no, we don't have any loaner kits. They're all loaned out to everyone. I'm like, okay, what do I do? He goes, he goes, play the kit that you have. Just cover up the Pearl logo. I'm like, well, I've already done that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> oh, that's So we funny. ended up, uh, as we were doing the second record, the kit still wasn't available then, but they did give me a loaner kit to record the second album with. So yeah, I was with DW from 1990 and so still with DW. But uh, going back to the angles, so... What happened was, is uh, I got back into skating probably in 2006, 2007, and Junkyard was, uh, we got, got back together in 2000, and we were playing a couple shows here and there, and uh, right around 2005, we started playing, you know, probably six times a year, so we were playing a lot, and I was still skating a lot, and I was skating with a couple guys down at my local park, and um, we had just got done skating this heavy, heavy pool session. And, and, you know, it's like you're talking about like eight guys dropping in on each other skating and everybody's doing tricks. And at that point, I was almost getting back to how I was skating when I was 18. 
And at the end of it, we go in the parking lot and we have a couple of beers and we're like, you know, talking, you know, the typical like, oh, talking about the good old days and all that. Well, one beer leads into about three. And uh, so we go back in the park and skate. And instead of skating the big 12-foot pool, we decide to go in and skate the uh, little five-foot little like mini half pipe. And we're all doing stuff that we couldn't normally do in a pool because it's a five-foot half pipe. You can do anything on it. So I started doing all kinds of fun stuff that I hadn't done in years that I can only do on something small. And uh, I ended up going up and doing basically what's called a board slide. And as I came back in, all I heard was everybody going, oh, my God, that's gnarly. And I was like, cool. And as I turned to go back in, I didn't realize that the front of my board was still stuck at the top of the bowl. So as I came back in, I kicked turned back in and went straight to the bottom and snapped my left wrist. Ouch. And, uh, I was at the funny, of course I was, you know, I had a little bit of uh, liquid courage in me, so I didn't feel it right off the bat. So I got up and did the trick again and pulled it off. And then afterwards I'm like, man, my wrist is killing me. This is not good. And, uh, so I went to the doctor the next day and, uh, I got really lucky because the doctor that I went to specializes in, uh, uh, musicians with like tendonitis and, uh, you know, broken bones and stuff. And, uh, he looks at me, he goes, yeah, you, you snapped it. Because it's going to take about six months, but uh, you'll be back to normal, semi-normal in about six months. And uh, I was like, okay, cool. I go, we don't really have much going on band-wise, so you know, I can take the time to kind of uh, heal up. And he looks at me, he goes, do you have any pictures of you playing drums? Like, I got video. I go, you know, here's my phone. Look at it. And he looks at it, and he's like, dude, what? He goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? He's like, he goes, you started off playing jazz, didn't you? I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, he goes, you gotta do, he goes, I tell all these drummers to do this, especially rock and roll drummers. He's like, you gotta, you gotta raise your seat up and lower your cymbals. Why are your cymbals six feet high? I'm like, I don't know. I never really thought about it because they're easy to reach. I don't know. And he goes, no, lower everything and uh, raise your seat up and uh, angle your drum like Buddy Rich would angle it. And I was like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. And so I started doing that and with a wrist, with a cast on. So I started practicing at home and it took me easily. Oh God. It took me about six or seven months to figure out how to angle it. Cause, uh, but you know, the jazz guys playing uh, traditional, they have it angled, uh, from left to right. You know, the left uh, side of the snare being the top part, it angles down going to the right, going down to like, I guess where your kick pedal would be. So I couldn't do that. So as, as, I, as I was trying to figure out the configuration, I would end up turning it and turning it and turning it to the point where it is now, where it's basically the top part is where the crotch level is, where you're sitting. And then the bottom part is basically it's, just, it's steep down, almost like almost a 45-degree angle, like straight down. Yes. And that's where I finally and then I'd raise the seat even more and raise it more. And then I'd have to get DW to like add an extra post onto the seat so I could sit a little higher. So I finally figured out the comfortability on playing like this. And also the doctor told me, he goes, if you play like this, you're going to get easily 20 more years out of your wrists. And he was right. Wow. You know, so I guess it, can, it comes down to really ergonomics. So it was really, I, literally a prescription from your doctor. Is, is the, yeah. Okay. Well, so I, I mean, I just... When I see your setup, I, I'm like, nobody came up with this on their, on their own. <laughs> you no, know. I, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do have to credit Daru Jones for really kind of like, uh, uh, kind of like helping me to figure out how to set it up like that. Cause we, uh, a mutual friend of mine of ours, 
uh, was his drum tech when he was playing with Jack White. And this goes back to probably 2014 or something like that. And oh, no, 2012. And, um, it was actually, uh, the, one of the original drummers for bad religion was, uh, Davru Jones, uh, drum tech when he was playing on the Jack White tour. So I would talk with, uh, with the tech about it and he would like kind of clue me in on how to set up and how to raise the seat up and how to raise the hi-hat stand up really high. So you don't cross your sticks and, uh, you know, get all like, you know, mixed up when you're playing. So that kind of helped me out a bit. Um, and a lot of people compare the, uh, my setup to Daru Jones setup because it kind of is the same setup yeah. or, or the same setup that he played with Jack White. Cause it was the big bass drum and the, uh, large floor tom. And, uh, that's also when I kind of hit up DW to make me a five by 16 inch snare. Yeah. I also, I, I had, I had played 15 inch snares for the longest time, but I figured, you know what? If I'm going to get back in junk air, chances are I'm going to have a couple of cocktails before I play. And if I have a 16 inch snare, no matter where I hit, I'm going to hit the center of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing, you know, that, that you guys are still doing this. You're, you know, I, I, God help me for saying this, but you're one of the few bands of that era that are still out there doing it. And, you know, I mean, obviously you're not doing stadiums like Guns N' Roses right. are, are doing. Yeah. But I mean, you guys all still get along. You're still, oh yeah. you know, I mean, kudos to you guys for that. And, you know, I just, I don't want to be too big a fanboy, but the first two <laughs> records, I mean, sincerely, I still put Simple Man on at least once every couple of weeks and listen to that tune because it's so damn good. I mean, it's just it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's really it's really tested the uh, <clears throat> it's tested the the you know it's still the the lyrical content for both the first and second record. The music it's still pretty relevant for today. It doesn't sound too dated, and uh, definitely that has a lot to do with obviously the songwriters, but uh, it has to do with the production value as well. With uh, you know, with Tom Worman doing the first record and, uh, especially Ed, St uh, Ed Stasium on the second record. And all of those got both of those producers, uh, we really, we really went to bat to get them, uh, mostly because of their backgrounds. Like with Tom Worman, it wasn't really, wow, Tom Worman did Motley Crue. It's like, no, Tom Worman did Cheap Trick. You right. know, it's like we went, we were in that whole thing. And then, uh, when we did the second record, uh, with Ed Stasium, uh, we were like, Ed's done, Ed did the Ramones. You know, Ed did Motorhead. Ed did, you know, he did Living Color. I mean, let's go with, he did the Smithereens. This is the stuff we like sonically. Yeah. And Ed also had a punk rock background. So both, you know, Tom Worman, because for all intents and purposes, Cheap, Rick, Cheap Trick started off kind of as a punk rock band. So yes. we went with them as producers because they really understood what we were trying to get across. So sonically, I think, especially the second record, Six of Sevens, Nines, that still is a really good sonically sounding record. Yeah, I mean, the other bands of that era, you know, and of the genre tended to drown things in reverb and delays oh, and yeah. echoes. And and it all sounds really dated now. Like, you know, you, you, yeah. you, you hear a snare drum hit and you're still hearing the snare drum hit a second and a half later. You guys didn't... Oh, yeah. You know, you guys didn't do that. And it was just... You know, for, for a kid from central Kentucky, it was raw, it was gritty, it was 
it was everything I wanted at the time. You know what I mean? It was like it it, it paid, we did our job. <laughs> you did. I mean, it, 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 it paid homage to my, you know, uh, rural heritage. It had this really cool blues and, and you know, southern appeal to it. And I lo- love those first two records. And um, yeah, they are. They're fun to listen to. You know, definitely. It brings me back to, uh, you know, it brings me back to funny times of like, you know, especially during the second record, uh, you know, we had our budget obviously went a little higher. So we decided, let's go. Let's go up to San Francisco and record the basic tracks. And it was so funny every time I'd walk in because that was back in the day when you had two weeks to do just the drum tracks. And every time I'd walk in uh, the room, Ed Stasi would be like, hey, Pat, you know, we're here for two weeks. Uh, you know, get, no pressure. It's all on you. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, thanks, dude. Because it's only like four grand a day. I'm like, oh, my God, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Oh, that's but so it good. Was, uh, it brings me back to those times of like, you know, of, uh, and, and that's the one thing with the band uh, it, where you go back to like, we still all get along. Granted, we've had member changes here and there. And people that, you know, the current lineup, um, with me and David and Todd being the original members, our guitar player, Tim, and our other guitar player, Jimmy, everybody was around back in the day. We all knew each other from other bands and we all hung around with each other. So we never really um, replaced any junkyard member with a guy that nobody knew. We always replaced it. It's like, oh yeah, we know him, grab him. It was never an audition kind of thing. Right. Well, so that's I, where we definitely we definitely have no drama. Yeah, you, you, and and it shows. You know, um, what are and I'm just curious. This is my own personal fascination. What are the the long term plans for Junkyard? Are you guys going to continue? You know, doing shows each year. I, I mean, obviously, you know, you guys don't go out for like ten months out of the year. You you do a, a handful of shows every year. You know, you've done some some recent releases. Um, are, uh-huh. are you going to continue recording? I mean, is, is it, I, I guess, what is the long-term plan or, or is it, is there one? There is none. Okay, good. <laughs> we just go, we just, we just roll. I mean, I guess, you know, we, we never thought we would actually do a, a brand new studio release. And, uh, as things happen, you know, the guy, uh, Rick from acetate records, who's an old friend of the band's. You know, he's like, hey, I'll put out a new record for you. So that's where High Water came out in 2017. And we, I mean, we, we never really thought about recording a new record when we got back together, but it kind of made sense. It's like, yeah, let's, let's do it for ourselves. You know, let's put this new thing out because, you know, people seem to want it. We were also playing, we went from playing four to six shows a year up to playing 20 shows a year. And we were like, well, let's do this. And that way it'll give us, uh, you know, some more vacation time. Our, I guess our vacation time is spent going out on the road where other people go to like Hawaii. <laughs> right. well, we go to a dingy club in Baltimore, you know? <laughs> so true, man. So, so true. we, uh, when we did high water, um, we, uh, we were like, Oh, and we, we had a, we had a person, I think I was booking me and the, me and the guitar player, Tim were basically handling all the day to day stuff and booking shows. So at that point we were like, Oh, we kind of need a booking agent. We kind of need a manager. And, uh, so we ended up getting a booking agent. And, uh, in 2017, we ended up doing probably about 30 shows. We did a couple festivals and, uh, and then 2018, I believe we did, no, 2017. I'm sorry. Yeah, we did like 40 something shows. And then 2018, we did 50 shows. I mean, for us, that was, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of vacation time. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. For sure. So we, we just basically rolled with it. And, uh, when we signed the deal with acetate, uh, basically it was, uh, it was a two record deal. And, uh, 
So High Water was the first release. And uh, we came across a situation where a lot of our old demos, because we did have a third record that we were supposed to do for Geffen, and they dropped us uh, while we were doing it. So Acetate and ourselves and our manager got together and said, let's finally put this third record out and put a pin in it. And, you know, a lot of the songs we aren't going to play live, but that way it's like this is more of a fan release. Yeah. And we put that out uh, in November, and that's called Old Habits Die Hard. And that's basically a, um, it's basically 13 songs. It's the, it's the songs that should have been on the third Geffen release that never came out. So we did that. But while we were, while we were curating that and uh, getting all the artwork together and um, remastering it, uh, we're, we're still in the process of writing the follow-up to High Water. And uh, that's probably going to come out, well, now with this whole... Um, virus situation uh you know it kind of pushes things back a bit but we are going to have a um, we're going to have a new single that's going to be coming out in probably july that's called rock and roll lifer and uh it's basically and then the b-side is a song called devil on my shoulder and we've recorded those we're just kind of waiting on you know i guess businesses to open up again so we can print it out on vinyl yeah and uh so that's probably july our tour plans for this year we did um we were kind of, we made it a point to like kind of mellow out for this year and only do maybe 20 shows, 25 shows this year because we wanted to concentrate on writing the new album and recording it. And uh, so we started off the year doing four shows with Danko Jones, which were just amazing for us, us being huge fans of him. And uh, we luckily, we didn't have anything booked uh, from uh, February until July. So this whole, this whole lockdown really doesn't affect us too bad. Well, that, that's uh, it may good. affect us for July. It depends. You know, we'll see what happens in July. But uh, and then in August, we do plan on doing a uh, two week ground run starting off in Las Vegas and ending probably somewhere in Minneapolis. But we don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, we're kind of in a holding pattern as well as everybody else is right now. Yeah, it's just it's frustrating, you know, that, that you can't go see a live show. You can't go play a live show. It's pretty nuts. And you know, I feel bad for the bands like, you know, all the other bands that are that had bo- shows and tours booked and uh, they had to cancel them. I mean, a lot of these acts, uh, you know, when you do go on the road, it's not like, you know, your guarantee, you're not living off of your guarantee. You're living off of merch sales. And yeah. uh, a lot of these bands, I mean, they do really well on merch. And for us, we do really well on merch as well when we play live. So when we come back and we settle up after the weekend and we pay off our expenses, you know, we, we each get a you know, nice chunk of change where we can go like have a nice dinner and maybe buy a, uh, you know, one of our guitar players can buy a new guitar from it. We're not, ma- we're not being rich from it, but uh, some of these acts really depend upon their, um, their live shows and their merch sales. And when you take that away, all these guys are scrambling to try to find out what they can do during this downtime. And uh, we've uh, actually on our webpage, we put together a, uh, a list of links of uh, how people can help out other bands or clubs that are, that are doing a GoFundMe campaign that are kind of shut down right now. Because we figure it's like if, if, this, if, all, of the, uh, if all of these uh, uh, you know, links are in one spot, it's easier for somebody to go pick and choose. Oh, I want to help out like... Uh, like the guitar player from LA guns is offering a uh, guitar lessons. Well, I can, you know, let me click this link or we offer um, a link where you can take a guitar lesson from our guitar player, Jimmy James. And there's also places, uh, there's also links on there where you can uh, help out like a club that's, uh, we play in Seattle called Funhouse. You know, they, they need, uh, 
they need money. Otherwise, they're going to go out of business. So you can you know, drop 10 bucks here, drop 10 bucks there. Right. And for us, uh, we actually put together where our merch sales, every time somebody buys uh, you know, anything from our website, portions of our sales go to Meals on Wheels for you know, senior citizens that can't get out and uh, get their own food. So we've done, uh, we've done pretty well. And we also dropped the prices on our merchandise because you know, nobody has any money right now. So that way we can kind of give it back to the people and then also donate to the Meals on Wheels campaign. And once we, do, once we get through that, we may end up uh, donating to the musicians' uh, relief fund or something like that, you know. So we're trying to pay it forward as much as we can to help out clubs and uh, other, band, other friends of ours and bands that have helped us out along the way. Yeah, man, that's just so kind of you guys. And, you know, I, and I'm not trying to plug myself at all, but, you know, I, I took it upon myself about a week or so ago to hit your website and replace my, you know, junkyard spade t-shirt. I, I bought one, I want to say in 1989, you know, and it was, uh, yeah, it's time to replace it. It was time to replace <laughs> it. Well, and, and back in those days I was wearing a small, so, um, right. y- you know what I'm saying? So, so I did order a junkyard shirt and, and I'm expecting it to be here today. And thank, you will get it today. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thank you, you guys so much for helping others out. And, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. We've already taken up so much of your time this morning. We got to have you back for a part two. Um, Absolutely. For sure. I mean, I feel like we could sit here and talk for probably four or five hours, <laughs> you know. Oh, about- yeah. The, the Danko podcast that I did, I think we chatted for about three hours and he was like, God, I got to, I got to, I got to edit this down to 45 minutes. <laughs> I well, was like, good luck. This is what you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Hey, I don't edit down, man. We'll just do a part two and we're, and we're good. There we go. Perfect. But, you know, <laughs> One of the things that we always try to do here on the podcast is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice. And, you know, you've been doing this for a long time and you're just such a cool guy. And, you know, I love your band. What kind of advice would you offer to, you know, other drummers, other musicians um, that that they can use in their day to day life? Oh, man. Wow. Good question. Uh I would say practice, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> if you've gotten to the point, like, you know, uh, our, we, we always joke in junkyard about it. It's like, we got to rehearse these songs again. If we don't know them by now, we shouldn't even be playing them. We, we joke about rehearsals being an insult to our intelligence. Yet when you go back in and you play, you realize, Oh, you actually do need to rehearse. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I would say just, you know, for drummers that are coming up, um, uh, there's no rush. Take it easy. You know, learn your craft. Uh, definitely go back. I mean, try not to pigeonhole yourself into any certain genre of music. Uh, uh, listen to everything. Be open-minded. Obviously, there's things that everybody likes and doesn't like, but, uh, you know, have a little bit of an open mind on listening to things and uh, definitely listen to the, you know, uh, you know, dynamics, uh, dynamics being key, you know, also, like, I guess, you know, there's a lot of drummers that are kind of, um, and I've ran across a lot of them, and I'm not meaning to bash on anybody, but a lot of them, their egos are really big, and they think it's like, look at me. It's, you know, uh, one guy that, you know, I think is, he's, probably, he's probably a really nice guy, but um, is that guy Zoltan Chaney. It's like, dude, sit down and play the drums. It's like, <laughs> you, you look like a circus animal. <laughs> uh. I mean, it's rad. To, no, no disrespect. I mean, it's insane what he's doing, but it's like, 
you're going to break a, you're going to break your neck, dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a special brand of showmanship, no doubt. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty That's crazy. Like Soleil or something. Yeah. Yeah. But, he, <laughs> but he's good. I mean, you know, the thing is I've heard him play like when he's just sitting down playing and it's like, there you go. You know, there, there you, you know, you're not dropping beats left and right, but I guess, uh, I guess, you know, certain people like, you know, there are drummers that, you know, have their egos and some drummers rightly so, but it's like, you know, you got to remember you're, you're basically driving the car and, uh, you know, know, know that, you know, once you know that and you have confidence in it, man, that's like 90% of the battle. And then at that point you can do a little flash and a little bit of stick twirls and stuff like that, but kind of just, uh, hone your craft, uh, study everybody uh not necessarily like playing but just watching i mean there's so many things like with youtube i mean i never had youtube as a kid i would just sit around and wait for like don kirshner's rock concert to come on tv or like you know whoever the guest was on saturday night live to watch the drummer play but now with the uh with with youtube and everything i mean people can watch like uh oh that was weird uh people like um you know, like old punk rock drummers like Chuck Biscuits, who to me is like probably the biggest influence on, on myself. I mean, that guy would just beat the crap out of the drum set, yet he wouldn't drop a beat. You know, so there's all these, all these uh, places where you can go watch these people, you know, watch old uh, Buddy Rich clips, you know, or watch the Buddy Rich, Rich clips where he bashes on his bands and, you know, yeah, right. on his uh, guys. And that's like something not to do unless you are the, you know, main member of the band. But, uh, and even then, don't treat people like shit. But, um, yeah. you know, it's, I would say just, uh, yeah, definitely be open-minded, listen to everything. Uh, I don't know, make sure to play to a metronome. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's always going to bite you in the ass on the way. Everybody plays, you know, once you go into a studio, it's like, oh, we got to set up the click track. I remember the first time that I played with a click, I got, I was seamless with the click because I grew up with a musical teacher that was, you know, would beat a, a drumstick on a uh, desk and that was the uh, tempo. So to me, I actually like playing with a click because, you know, I can kind of relax and play around with the click and kind of play behind it a bit or kind of ahead of it. So, but I would just say, you know, for drummers, be open-minded. Don't, don't worry about endorsements. Um, buy, you know, get the gear that you want, get the gear that you like. Uh, endorsements are, you know, it's endorsements. They don't endorse you. You endorse the product, you know, and if you like that product, you buy it. And then eventually if, you know, you become successful in a, in a local scene or a national scene or a worldwide scene, that company will take notice and you will get, you know, you'll get your stuff at a certain percentage off and they'll promote you. And, uh, but yeah, so many, it seems like so many drummers out there are really, um, really into the whole endorsement thing. And yeah. it's, uh, then again, I, I guess maybe I'm lucky because be, having the years behind me, you know, and having the, uh, the companies behind me, DW, Senten Symbols, uh, Los Cabos, Aquarian Drum Eds, I'm, I guess I'm lucky in that sense where the years that I got to do all of this stuff, it kind of helps out. But, um, I mean, it, you know, getting deals with, uh, Los Cabos wasn't as easy as, oh yeah, I'm going to endorse you, you know, give me a deal. Right. You know, it's a lot of, uh a lot of promoting the company. Even if you don't, you know, if you're not going to get an endorsement, just promote the company. If you like tasty symbols, great, promote them. You know, th yeah. these people do t pay attention to uh, young drummers. Yeah. And you know, here's another thing that we talk about a lot on this show. I, I don't care. You, you can set up a, a DW kit, a Pearl kit, a Yamaha kit, wh whatever brand I'm going to, uh -huh. I'm going to sound like me. 
you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you want to play what you want to play. And I certainly have right. my opinions as to what I think sounds the best. But, right. you, you know, I mean, there's you mentioned YouTube. There's a YouTube video of Benny Greb playing a SpongeBob uh, SquarePants drum set. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> he sounds like Benny Greb. I mean, exactly. You know, so it, it's not necessarily about the gear, but man, that's just a ton of good advice that you dropped there. And, and I certainly appreciate I like what you say it. about the gear. It's more about the play. I mean, that even lends itself to guitar players. I mean, you can have a guitar player that play, you know, has a, a 59 Les Paul that's playing through a nice vintage Marshall amp, but then you hand him some like no name guitar and he's playing through like a, you know, computer stereo. And guess what? He sounds just like himself. It's all about your style and how you hone your craft after so many years. Yes. That's, I mean, that's just so true. And it's such good advice. Pat, brother, man, you are welcome here anytime. I look, we'll do a part two. Yes. We'll definitely do a part two. I look forward to the part two coming up. So man, stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Uh, you too. Yeah, man. I appreciate you taking the time and we'll talk to you real soon. Definitely. Thank you so much. All right, man. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 99 of the Drum Shuffle. As always, thank you guys so, so much for tuning in. We just, we simply can't do this show without each and every one of you tuning in each and every week. We truly do appreciate that. As I always do, I'm going to ask you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in to the Drum Shuffle. It helps us tremendously. Leave us a thumbs up, a star rating, a review, wherever it is that you tune in. That helps other folks find us. And the most helpful thing you can do is share a link with a friend. If you know of a drummer or a musician that might like to hear what we do over here at the Drum Shuffle, send them a link. Say, hey, check this show out. And we do appreciate your efforts on that. Guys and girls, next week will be our 100th episode And to be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea what I'm going to do yet, but I am going to try to make it special. So make sure you tune in next week for our hundredth episode. I promise we'll do something crazy and cool. Uh, As always, we answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle Podcast. The email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. We have all sorts of social media links over there, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. You can follow us in those places as well, and we do appreciate that Uh, on top of everything else that you give and do for the show. We do appreciate those social media follows. Guys, I can't say this enough. Please stay safe, stay healthy, do your part, do whatever you can to help your neighbors, to help others. Our guest today, Patrick, talked about that quite a bit, how you can try to pay it forward in simple ways. You know, visit the Junkyard website, order a t-shirt like I did. Um, You know, visit your favorite artist's website buy a t-shirt, buy a a vinyl, buy a CD, buy a bumper sticker. It doesn't matter. We need to help our artist community because we are all struggling. And, you know, somebody said something that I thought was pretty, uh, pretty impactful the other day. They said, you know, when we all got locked into our houses and we started binging Netflix, listening to music, 
watching live streams of musicians. Just remember, in your darkest time, you turn to art. And I think that's a really good message. So let's support one another. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.